Good day there, guys, and welcome back to the Blowing Cartridges podcast. I am one of your hosts, Zach Clark, and as always, joined by my RPG-loving co-host, Brendan. Brendan, how are you on this fine evening? I'm very well, Zach, because as you know, I've been hinting that I've been wanting to discuss RPGs and JRPGs in particular for many, many months on this podcast. I think there's been many references throughout other topics that don't really relate to RPG, so it's good to actually be able to finally dive into it. Yes, 100% agree, and we are very, very lucky to have a, some would say, I, you know, I would say potentially an expert in the field in JRPGs from uh, digitallydownloaded.net, Matt Sainsbury. Matt, how are you going, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for that very kind introduction. I wouldn't call myself an expert as such, as more somebody that just spends way too much time playing the things, but... <laughs> Yeah, I really appreciate the chance to jump on and chat about my favorite genre. That's uh, really kind of you to have me here. No worries. And yeah, really appreciate you coming on, um, particularly on you know this episode. I mean, Brendan, you're well-versed in JRPGs. Obviously, Matt, you just mentioned you are. Me, I've played a few of them, but I've definitely not got the extensive history with them as, as you both do. So I'll certainly be more <laughs> listening and keen to get both of your views on the genre as we delve in to the topic but first off i guess we'll start with what do we think defines a jrpg a japanese role-playing game or a role-playing game in general like what the different types the different flavors brendan i might start with you to to open up and then we'll see where we go there'd be a clear-cut answer to that question and not a clear-cut answer to that question because i guess if you distill it down to the base properties well your mind goes to i guess the direct ancestor to role-playing games in video game form which would be your pen and paper rpgs your dungeons and dragons and well in this day and age your things like pathfinder and other pen and paper rpg systems and that's i guess in its spirit in its at its core the rpg genre is it's about building your characters it's about player interactions with a particular world that's been created and it's about going on a journey i think and those are some of the elements that are there at its very base and I'll let Matt put his own view forward before we go into that deeper, but then I guess then you get all into all different subgenres and that's put into a video game form like your Western RPGs, like your Japanese RPGs, like your strategy RPGs, action RPGs. There's all different manner of how gameplay systems can be applied to those core understandings of what role playing means in a gaming sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is the, the the pen and paper RPG started in the 70s, I think. Mr. Gygax himself, the guy that invented Dungeons & Dragons as a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there would have been tabletop games that are like Dungeons & Dragons before that, but Dungeons & Dragons is really the one that we identify as the genesis of the genre. And it was developed because Gygax wanted to create an alternative to the tabletop war games, which were quite popular back in those days. So, you know, where you'd have entire armies recreating battles from, you know, Waterloo and Gettysburg and all that kind of thing. So his idea was, well, what if rather than entire armies, what if each player has a single character? What does that do to the dynamics of the game? How does that change how people play it and all that kind of stuff? And I guess as a result, we ended up, like you said, with with these things where because people are only uh, controlling one character they got very invested in that character and it became a storytelling experience rather than just a series of mechanics. And that's really where the the RPG started. The JRPG, which I guess is what we're kind of predominantly talking about on this podcast, 
it had a, a kind of a, an amusing invention in that these Japanese developers were really into Dungeons and Dragons and they wanted to create a video game version of that. And we're talking about the original Dragon Quest, the original Final Fantasy, all those kinds of games. And they were writing to the likes of Wizardry and Rogue and stuff, which were the Western RPGs of the, the time. They were quite limited because they were developing on consoles and their limitations became what we kind of identify as the JRPG today in that you know, the way that magic works, the way that you had the turn-based combat with the sprites, which was the thing, you know, for for West for Japanese RPGs right through to the later eras. And all those kind of qualities that we identify within Dragon Quest, Final Fantasy, and through that, the whole JRPG genre really came as an answer to the limitations that they couldn't do the full Dungeons & Dragons experience on a console. Yeah, no, that... That's a very comprehensive history and, and a good summary of uh, the origins, I suppose, of both the, the general RPG and the and the JRPG. There's a few thoughts I've sort of written down and I want to get your opinions on as to whether these are defining features of a JRPG or an RPG, either or. And the first one I want to talk about, particularly with JRPGs, is the idea of turn-based combat. Because I know when I was a kid, I always associated... Uh, JRPGs is is being turn based, but in these days, a lot of the tentpole franchises, you know, Final Fantasy, probably a prime example, have really moved away from that and into more action combat. So I'd be keen to get both your takes whether turn based is sort of like a key element, or these days is no longer really an essential part of what makes a JRPG stand out in the crowd. To begin with, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a key component to what a JRPG is that it I don't think JRPGs have to be turn-based but I think why there's that perception there is that there's a long history of many hallowed JRPGs that are turn-based and if you look at what games are available in the contemporary times in the RPG space most of your turn-based offerings will be either JRPGs or JRPG inspired most of your western RPGs now are more open world affairs yes and I guess user action combat system. There's exceptions to that rule. There's things like a lot of games like your new Baldur's Gate 3 and the like will have systems where it's a hybrid system. You can use turn-based combat or action combat. Same with the new Pathfinder game. Same with things like Dragon Age. There's generally that option. But I think it is a misnomer to say that a turn-based system is key to JRPGs. Because if you go back to even the 90s in a lot of Japanese RPGs, things like Secret of Mana, even the Final Fantasy series with your active time battle system, there's always been attempts by these developers to push the boundaries of a turn-based system and to have more player interactivity. And that resulted in a lot of really interesting systems. It resulted in things like the Paper Mario series where you have to have button inputs to your attacks and the game rewards you for timing. And there's aspects of the Japanese RPG genre and design philosophy that really pushes those boundaries so that that's my answer to that question yeah i mean i guess this is obviously something that comes up a, a lot what is the definition of a jrpg versus a western rpg are they any different especially now that there are so many western rpgs that have kind of turn-based combat systems and then so many japanese rpgs that have more action-based systems to be honest my my kind of answer to that is i don't think that mechanics define these genres mm -hmm. i think it's more this is something where the lines get blurred constantly and it's a very much a generalization but i think 
for me, the definition or the the line that you can draw between the Western RPG and the Japanese RPG is really based on the kind of concept of realism. Now, I don't mean realism in the sense of recreating the real world as a, you know, a GTA or a Watch Dogs would, but Western developers certainly try to create this perception that their RPGs could be based in reality in some way. So whether it is, you know, Dragon Age, which is very much a kind of a, a kind of Europe style setting or Mass Effect, which feels like this is what could happen or it's kind of a there's a, a a realistic nuance behind what they're trying to do and they're trying to create this sense that this could happen that this is somehow based in reality somehow the japanese developers don't care about that on any level whatsoever they're much more focused on creating these kinds of flights of fans uh, fantasy where the existence of the world or the believability of the world isn't really important it's more what the story is behind it so you look at a final fantasy 13 for example None of that in any way feels realistic any, at any point. But you obviously connect to the characters. I mean, if you like Final Fantasy XIII, a lot of people didn't, I do. But you, you connect to the characters, you feel their story, but it's just not set in a world that's real. And by removing it from the real, the developers have, uh, I guess, a, a kind of freedom to explore a uh, broader range of ideas and, and stuff with their games. So... I mean, even Final Fantasy XV, you wander around that open world, and it is an open world game, but it doesn't feel like any other open world, and the reason it doesn't is because they don't try and make it real, <laughs> which is, it's such a vague thing to say, I know, and I'm going to have, I'm sure some people will respond to your podcast going, what, what the hell is this guy on? But <laughs> that's really where I draw the line. It's just the Japanese developers don't care about creating a sense of the real, whereas the Western developers certainly want you to feel like it's grounded in something. That's a really interesting perspective, and I can certainly agree that that to me makes more sense than trying to define by mechanics because mechanics certainly have fluctuated i think between you know over the years and as you said flown back and forth between western and japanese developed um, rpgs just to expand on that one thing i'm curious is what your view is though about japanese or jrpgs that aren't developed in japan and is that even a thing like an example i think of is obviously undertale and its sequel which is clearly inspired by Earthbound, hmm. but made by a Westerner. Could it be fair to call a game like that uh, a JRPG, given it, in my opinion, carries over that sort of aesthetic uh, and that sort of world building that you, you described there versus a more realistic sort of, you know, believable world? I think so. And I think that's why, for me, when I say JRPG, I don't locate it within Japan. I don't actually think of it as Japanese RPG. I just think of it as jrpg with the j just being a, a character rather than a word and i think it is mm. because it is just a concept and an approach to game development there was a new developer out of columbia that released this game called uh, chris tales earlier this year and it mm -hmm. is this most magnificent game that in every single way is a jrpg it was inspired by chrono trigger it has an art style that is it's definitely different to any other JRPG you've played, but you would imagine it comes from Japan. It feels like a Japanese game. And the reason that it can still be a JRPG, even though it wasn't developed by Japanese people, is because it was approached in that, in that kind of way. And the same way Japanese developers can and increasingly do create games that I wouldn't necessarily consider to be Japanese RPGs or JRPGs. I'd consider them to be more kind of Western-inspired RPGs. And they try and do that to... to um, to appeal to a broader audience, perhaps, or, you know, um, 
reach out to the American players or whatever, but they can definitely do that. And it's just that they need to remove themselves from the way that JRPGs are created to kind of create that more realistic grounding that the Western RPG asks for. I definitely agree with that. And I think if we step away from RPGs for a brief moment, you very much saw that philosophy with the Castlevania series when Konami handed that over to Mercury Steam, who, yes, recently did Metroid. But if you compare the Japanese-developed Castlevania game to the Mercury Steam's ones, it's just it's a very different design philosophy. I don't think it's necessarily because it's done by a Western studio. I think it was just, it came down to those, the design choices the developers made and that you can attribute that partially to, yes, one's in Japan, one's not in Japan. But I think it's just a different approach to design and that was a conscious choice by Konami at the time to broaden the audience of the series. And if we went in this different direction, we'd get more sales and we're not equipped to do that. So we're going to get someone else to do it. So I, I definitely agree that you're not necessarily grounded in a continent in when you want to design a particular style of game way forward show they could create a contra game like Konami did. So I think it's a bit too narrow minded to suggest it's bound by geographical limits. Yeah. And I mean, when you talk about Castlevania, what, Mercury Steam did with the Castlevania series in terms of making that action thing. I mean, you can look back in Japan and uh, at what has happened with with Devil May Cry. In a lot of ways, Devil May Cry feels very Western style in terms of its approach and its design philosophy and and what it's done. More recent games, I guess the early ones do feel a little bit different, but the more recent ones are definitely an attempt to change that and and make it, I guess, a, a more global thing, which I think is what Mercury Steam was aiming to do with the Castlevania games. So... Japanese developers can do it. They probably do it less because I think the game industry over there is more insular and they're more kind of committed to the way they do things. Uh, That's just my own impression from the chats I've had with Western developers versus Japanese developers. The Japanese developers do tend to be more insular and therefore create games that are more culturally bound, but they can certainly break away from that when they want to as well. So uh, yeah, it's not a geographic thing, I don't think. Mm, No, that makes a lot of sense. Now I'm going to open up as there was a there was a debate that was pretty prevalent during my school years. I don't know if it will be the same for you guys, but I'll be curious. Zelda often <laughs> debated is it an RPG or not? Because uh, aesthetically, it has a lot of similarities to our other big JRPG franchises, but uh, mechanically, you know, people say action adventure or puzzle. I'd be curious to see what side of the debate you're both on and, and why you're on that side. So I don't know, I might, might start with you, Matt, given your, your chuckle there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was certainly a discussion. You know, I've never really thought about it that hard. I think I accept Zelda as being Zelda. And <laughs> to be honest, I don't think of it as an action adventure thing. I don't think of it as an RPG. I don't think of it as anything other than Zelda. And it's a very small genre perhaps only Zelda and Okami as far as prominent games go within that genre. But I don't think it is a JRPG. I can't give you answers why, because I've never really tried to nut down why I think that. But for me, I would suggest the reason I don't feel it as an RPG is possibly because it's that heavily weighted towards the emergent side of storytelling, where... The, the Link character is completely mute. There's very little in terms of actual narrative and cutscenes and plot and all of those kinds of things. So there's not much of a guided narrative in Zelda games, typically. It's really just a kind of foundation and then they leave you to go away and kind of 
explore and be linked in your own terms. So for me, the JRPG in particular, and even the Western RPG, they're kind of guided experiences. And the lack of guidance in Zelda, I think, is is what separates it a bit for me. How about you, Brendan? Do you have a, a stance on the on the debate? <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely one that I've changed my opinion on, I think, many times throughout the years because and I think at the moment I'd agree with Matt that I think it has carved out its own genre that it's a very small niche genre that very much has Zelda, Akami, and then arguably the first Darksiders game. Not not the sequels, because those games go in a complete different direction. But I remember playing the first Darksiders game and I didn't necessarily think that, oh, this is an action-adventure game or this is an RPG. I, I very much thought that, oh, this feels like a Zelda game. Like, that that was the first thoughts that evoked in my mind when I was going through that game, and I very much enjoyed my experience with that game. So I think it is a genre in its own right, and I think I would also argue that if you were to look through all the Zelda games, I think really the only one that I would definitively classify as an RPG would be Zelda 2, and that is one that it's an anomaly for the series regardless of the series as a whole so i think like that probably would have been my answer that if i had to pick a zelda game that i'd champion as an rpg it would be that one and it has very many strengths in its own right and also has many elements that i never really picked up in another zelda game directly ever again Mm, no that that makes a lot of sense i think also you know this sort of outcome that i think is really indicative to like why genres they're kind of like simultaneously important and interesting but also not important because things just blur so many lines mm-hmm. um and while it can be fun to just try and fit something in a category it's also completely meaningless because at the same time it's just like well if you like the game uh you like the game whether it's an rpg uh action adventure or a we'll go with a newly coined genre of zelda like i suppose and see how long that takes to to um take off but Given we are talking about the genre and the name of the genre, it is interesting how JRPG, again, sort of linking back to its heritage as Japanese RPG, is, as far as I'm aware, and if, if I'm wrong, please correct me, the only genre that has got a geographical sort of label to it. Uh, you don't see a lot of other, you know, I don't see J shooters or, you know, Australian shooters or Thai shooters or American shooters. It's just FPS or third person shooter, for example. Any thoughts as to why this is the one sort of subclass or one genre, you know, umbrella that has got this geographical divide, at least from its earlier sort of days back in the 80s and 90s? I think it's just because the the games that kickstarted the JRPG were that compelling, that powerful, and that they became that recognisable that the, the genre kind of got entrenched within that. So, I mean, Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy being the two that I'm I'm thinking about here, they definitely came from Japanese studios. The stories behind those games is very well known. The people that made them are all very well known and everybody knows that they're Japanese. So I think that the reason we kind of became, we, we got to that point where we defined the JRPG as what it is was simply because that's where the first couple of games came from and um, it's kind of stuck since. I agree. And I think it, there's also the element of the cultural milieu at the time because I think it's very much a, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's very much a moniker that arose in the your mid to late 90s, early 2000s when there was that or the increasing rise of Japanese culture in the West. You had all that different anime series breaking out. You had your manga getting localised. 
I guess, very much changed the cultural landscape. I know Zach and myself being children of that era, we re- that that was the pop culture of our time. It wasn't there was a bit of American pop culture, of course, things like Disney and the like, still very powerful culturally. But you had that Japanese presence that or wasn't there if you went back a couple of decades before the nineties, two thousands. So I think that is one of the other reasons as well that it was seen as a as an easy, I guess, indicator that you could just attribute this t- these types of games to a geographical location, saying, oh, these are games made in Japan, Japanese things are popular at the moment, I like Japanese things, I'm going to enjoy this type of genre. And I think also going back to one of Matt's earlier um, answers about just what defines a um, JRPG, I think it's just, just because even after those Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy games, until, I guess, more recent times with a lot more indie developers having a crack at the type of games that we classify as JRPGs because all of them did come from a specific geographical location. I think the label just stuck that if you wanted a game like a Final Fantasy game, you you were very much having to rely upon Japanese developers to deliver that experience. You know, I think that's a really, both really good points. Yeah. Like, and this is touching on that, um, I guess, you know, cultural sort of revolution of, of Japan's sort of, slowly trying to and i think successfully in many respects influence the world through their their products and stuff which probably began in the you know 70s or 80s with with technology and um toys and that kind of stuff and then continued on into to anime and video games um so that makes a lot of sense as to why that's that's definitely stands out well i think we've done uh, as best as as three three armchair analysts can do in in defining this uh this nebulous genre and, and explaining it uh, for those who might not already have partaken in the genre themselves. Uh, and now I think it's a good ch- chance to sort of talk about our, our personal history with JRPGs in general. Uh, and I might go first, again, given I probably have the, the least amount of history in terms of quantity of games, at least. I mean, like a lot of uh, children of the 90s, I think, it, and, and particularly a, a child who was uh, with a 64 and a, and a Game Boy, I was definitely first exposed via Pokemon, <laughs> and there's, there's no doubt about it. I think it's probably the one JRPG I played until much later in life when I probably, on my GameCube, actually, I guess Paper Mario at some point on 64, but it wasn't until, yeah, late, like later on GameCube, Wii, and then when I eventually got a PlayStation that I sort of branched out, but Pokemon was the genesis, that, that leveling up monsters, evolving them, that was definitely my entryway into the series uh, into the genre and it's interesting because it's it's not a when you think about other jrpgs it's absent a lot of the other elements you normally associate it's not got a a very grand storyline by any stretch of the imagination um and it sort of stands out and is often i guess toted as a great you know baby's first you know rpg kind of game which um i don't know if that's a fair <laughs> claim or not but it certainly was you know for me and that, you know, I think it certainly got me used to the mechanics, I suppose, of the leveling up, the, you know, picking different moves, having to understand the synergies of my party uh, and the strategy behind it. It certainly laid those foundational sort of elements for when I would later tackle uh, more challenging and more, you know, varied RPGs. Uh, Brendan, what about you? I, I'm going to guess you might have had a similar first JRPG experience, but maybe I'm wrong there. No, my JRPG starter experience was exactly the same Zach. It was with my <laughs> sister's copy of Pokemon Yellow back in the day. And I guess that was my gateway drug into the genre per se. And I, I agree with you. I think if you look at Pokemon in the context of all 
other major JRPG franchises today in major JRPG series. Like, it does sit apart. Like, it's still, you'd still describe it as a JRPG, but we recently saw the release of the Diamond and Pearl remakes, and it came out alongside or a week after Shin Megami Tensei Five, And those are games that you could critically say, yes, they're in the same genre, but they are very different experiences and very different propositions as games. And after my experience with Pokemon, I then had experience with Fire Emblem early in the, well, early 2000s when that first released in the West and then had sidetracked into Western games like your Diablos and Dungeon Sieges and the like. But it is very much that Pokemon that for me was my gateway into the genre. How about you, Matt? What was your, if you can remember, your first uh, JRPG experience? Yeah, I'm getting a little on in years now, so I don't remember things so well. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I was right into to fantasy as a kid, big time. So the, the first book I remember ever reading was a King Arthur kind of picture book. Um, my, mm-hmm. All through school, I was reading the likes of Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. My parents got me into all that stuff quite early and they encouraged it because I was interested and it got me reading, so that was a good thing. Uh, and I also discovered a Dungeons & Dragons box that my parents had, the beginner set of the, the first edition, and I just read through that over and over and over again, and it kind of you know caught my imagination, I guess, in a big way. So then I discovered that there was a bunch of uh, Dungeons & Dragons games on PC by SSI, which was a it's a developer that's not around anymore, that they had the D&D license, and they created all kinds of games with that. But I was always more of a console gamer. I uh, had a Game Boy, uh, the Super Nintendo. That was a thing that that we all liked, uh, my brothers and I, as we were growing up. So I went looking for stuff that was like Dungeons & Dragons on, on these consoles. And it was difficult. It was very difficult to find pretty much anything because I grew up in country uh, Australia. And country Australia caught on to weird cultures like the Japanese quite late on. <laughs> and I, I say that with the, uh, I can't stand people calling the Japanese weird. I tweeted about that just today. But uh, to where I was growing up at that time, um, West uh, kind of rural Australia is and was incredibly racist and all those kinds of things. And it was hard to find stuff to do with Japanese culture, but there was a copy of Final Fantasy in the local um, game store, Final Fantasy 2, which is four, but... Uh, the numbering was weird, and I don't think we have time to get into that on the podcast. But Final Fantasy IV on the Super Nintendo was the first uh, JRPG I played. And I absolutely loved it, and I loved it more than the games I was playing on the PC. So that was really where I got started with the whole genre. And as the years went on and this stuff became more available, I consumed more and more of it, and now I play way too many of these things. No, I mean, I can understand. I mean, Final Fantasy IV is... I mean. Everyone, I'm sure everyone can make an argument for why any of the Final Fantasies are the best in the series, but four is definitely up there with you know the sixes and the sevens. I reckon to to make that argument. So I mean, four four absolutely blew my mind. That that scene in particular where I guess this is a spoiler. So spoiler spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert for people who haven't somehow played Final Fantasy four or don't know the story yet. There's a scene where he's, I mean, he starts out the game as the Dark Knight, and that's literally his job class, and he's doing horrible things on the behalf of the Empire. He has a crisis of uh, conscience, and he, he decides he wants to undo everything he did, and his challenge to do so was to ascend a mountain, uh, fight himself effectively, and be reborn as a paladin. Doing so, reset all his stats down back to level one, and it was it was just this moment where 
it was like the developers put aside the need to have mechanics and gameplay and stuff to to make everything work around the story and that just blew my mind as a kid and it's a scene i've never forgotten since i've written entire essays on that one particular scene so i think that was probably within final fantasy 4 which was my first game that was the first moment that i really fell in love with the, the jrpg yeah i mean and it certainly would have stood out so much at the time when you know you're comparing it to like just other types of games you know your marios your contras or i think it's called like probotector here or whatever which are very much like okay we want to do this gameplay and now we just slapdash a story type context on top of it um as you said focus on the story and build the gameplay around it uh particularly such a like that concept of a story for something that back then was probably considered for kids is, is so deep and so like intriguing it's um it's it's understandable why that genre when people play games like that get captured and just want to delve into it you know head first for the you know rest of their rest of their lives which is what we're gonna sort of move on to now so i mean it's 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 a long history of uh jrpgs we could probably spend five hours talking about you know all our favorites but we thought we'd limit it just to three, which is probably going to be a challenge. It's a little bit like kill your babies kind of exercise here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'll, we'll do a bit of a round the grounds. So I'll, I'll start with you, Brendan, as to which one you want to go first. And up to you whether you're going to do in a particular order or you're just going to list three and they could all be your top one as far as you're concerned. <laughs> I will attempt to do a bit of a list, but I, I th- it is a list that I think I was thinking about before we started recording and it's going to be one that moves around quite a bit. But I think if I was to choose a number three favourite JRPG, it would be Tales of the Abyss, which I first played on the 3DS, actually. First released in the mid-2000s on the PS2. Didn't come out in European, Australian territories until the early 2010s with the 3DS. And at the time, I I was interested in JRPGs. I wouldn't necessarily have called myself a enthusiast or fan of the genre specifically. There were games in the genre I enjoyed very much. There's been, there were ones that I had played quite a bit, but mainly it was mainly games like Fire Emblem, Pokemon, and things like um, oh, what was I just about to say? Like oh, Paper Mario, of course, that I'd experienced with. There were there were some other things like I'd started dipping my toes into Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, but. As you know, Zach, I'm very much a sort of gamer that buys games and not necessarily plays them. So the fact that I actually completed Tales of the Abyss is probably a feat in itself. And as a game, I just really enjoyed it for a lot of the reasons we've been discussing that are genre hallmarks. Like I, I found the the story and the narrative design just quite powerful and compelling. And I think a lot of people, it's a bit of a divisive game in the Tales fandom because I think a lot of people don't particularly like the character Luke von Faber and honestly for the first half of the game I, I'd agree I think he was a he's very childish he's very annoying but I think that's part of the very masterful story design in that game that they take this character and there's a redeeming moment for the character and after that I guess middle part of the game the the second the back half of the game you very much see the growth of a character and the culmination of the entire story which is what I think the jrpg genre as a whole does really well but it does set pieces really well it does entire narratives really well whereas if we were to compare it directly to a lot of western rpgs i think there's some western rpgs that do very good um, world building 
along your lines of your Tolkens and the like. They can build a very good world, a compelling world, but sometimes those set pieces just appear missing. And especially those more open-ended, open-world games that, yes, you're exploring this world, you're going on a journey, but because it isn't as linear as some of the as some of the JRPGs, it, it misses some of those moments and misses some of those experiences. And I think games like Tales of the Abyss does that really well. And that, that's always been one of my favorites. I have to admit, never tried it. <laughs> I've played other Tales games, but now you, you, you make me want to go find a copy on my 3DS and pick it up. So thank you for the uh, for your thoughts. Out of interest, Matt, have you played Tales of the Abyss? Is that, is that one that you've experienced over the years? Yeah, I've played... I'm pretty sure I played all the Tales games at some stage or other. <laughs> Must admit, not my favourite series. I'm not great with the fighting combo style uh, combat system that they generally have. For me, it was really Tales of Arise that was the first one, and that's the most recent one that was earlier this year. That was the first one that I absolutely fell in love with from that series. So as far as Tales games go, I'm, I'm not the one to, to really talk about it. Every time I have an opinion about Tales, people yell at me, so <laughs> I try not to. <laughs> That's all good. <laughs> well, tell us of, of, a, of a, a game you do have an opinion of that's seemingly positive, uh, given it's in your, your, the three you're going to talk about today. Okay, my top three. Um, I'll start by saying Persona 4, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's where I'll start. <laughs> That'll be the one I start with. Uh, so Persona 4 was actually the game that inspired me to write my book, of all things. So I guess that was a career-defining game in some ways. It was, yeah, I, it's it, for me it was just it it was everything that i like about jrpgs because it didn't really focus on the combat side of things it was there it was present and you got to enjoy it while it was there and that was all fine but really it was everything else around it It was the storytelling it was the group of characters it was the kind of the the bond that grew between those characters it was the thinking behind the game and uh, it it was quite a smart game it has a has a lot of things to say it's got if you if you enjoy your philosophy in video games, then you'll get a lot out of Persona 4 while you're also enjoying its sense of humor and the characters. And to to a lesser extent, I guess, the combat. Nobody ever says that Persona 4's combat is, is excellent, but it's enough to get the game by and it gives you a break between the, the narrative bits. So, yeah, it was all of those things. And it's a game that I play pretty regularly. I don't generally find time to replay too many games these days, but... I do make sure that I play Persona 4 through at least once or twice every couple of years. Um, the last time I played it through was when it got released on PC. Was that earlier this year or last year? Last year. I think this year, but it's been a bit of a blur. Maybe it was last year. <laughs> whenever it was re-released or whenever it was put on PC, I, I played it through again. I'm kind of hoping to get to Switchboard at some point because that'll be an excuse to play it through yet again. And I think it'd be, I think it'd be good on Switch. I think that's a natural platform for it. It was great on Vita. That's where... I really like. I mean, I like the original Persona Four on PS2, but the Vita version, for whatever reason, just really popped out a lot more. Yeah, I, I to be honest, Persona Four Golden was probably going to be in my top three as well, so I may as well seg- segue into my thoughts on it. My first experience was the Vita version, uh, not not the PS2 one. From memory, Golden came out kind of around a like there was a big marketing push on Persona Four, like there was the anime coming out and. I think the fighting game was either close to coming out, Persona 4 Ultimate, so that had been teased. And I was just very curious in the franchise because I'd heard a lot about it. And uh, not knowing much about it going in, but knowing that I like, A, detective sort of storylines, like your Hotel Dusks and, and that kind of thing. 
B, I like, you know, high school anime kind of stuff, and C, I like monster collecting RPGs. It just hit every single note for me uh, in, in that respect. Uh, and as you said, it was just fantastic on on the Vita. Like, it's just such a, a perfect handheld game in many respects, being able to, just, you know, be on the train going to uni, I think it was at the time, and just do, a you know, a couple of social events or, you know, get through a, a floor in a dungeon. Uh, it works so well. Soundtrack's fantastic. Uh, and and I listen to that regularly. And as, as, you, as you sort of mentioned, the world is just interesting, at least for me, as someone who had sort of seen most JRPGs as being these kind of still more fantasy-based things up until that point, or at least from my experience, you know, again, Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest... Uh, having something set in more modern day country Japan was was really cool, and I know other games had done that before. I'm not saying it's the first, but it was just the first I'd experienced in that setting, and it you know it almost felt like going on a bit of a holiday <laughs> in a regards, like being able to visit a uh, uh, obviously not a real place, but um you know emblematic of other sort of country Japan locales. Uh, it was just a yeah, it's just a fantastic game, and I definitely recommend. Uh, anyone plays it. And I, I think it still holds up. That's the other thing. It's not like um, Persona 1 and 2, which I've tried to play, but I, I, I found a bit dated personally. I think, you know, anyone can play, who's maybe played Persona 5, loved that, can jump into Persona 4 and have just as good a time uh, as people playing it back when it originally launched on PS2. I think the other thing is it's not so long uh, in, in terms of its length. I mean, we probably don't have scope to talk about it on this podcast, but one of the issues I do have with the more modern RPG, JRPG, is that they push to be too too long in a lot of cases, and I don't think it's necessary. Like, Persona 5 was twice the length of Persona 4 and didn't say anything that Persona 4 didn't say itself. So the fact that Persona 4 is, uh, what, about a 50-hour RPG to kind of fly through, uh, it sounds like a lot, but that's a relatively brief experience for the genre these days, and I certainly appreciated that about it as well. Uh, Brendan, have you played Persona 4 or any of the Persona games? I feel like maybe no, but I might be wrong. No, unfortunately I haven't. My only experience with the series is with Shin Megami Tensei, and even then it's a spin-off, as in I've played Soul Hackers on the 3DS, which really enjoyed. So I do understand some of the aspects and systems of the series, but nothing directly Persona. I, of course, I, I did purchase Persona 4 Golden on PC early this year with the intent to play it very soon so hopefully i'll be able to do that in the new year which i'm very much looking forward to particularly after what both yourself and matt said about the game i've only heard very good things about it so i'm very eager to play it well yeah definitely after this episode just get on steam download it and uh we'll see you in uh, a week or two after you finished it (laughs) (laughs) all righty well i might mention one of mine and the one i'm going to mention i feel like it doesn't get a lot of love, and maybe there's good reasons for that, but it was one that really captured me fairly recently, about, you know, I think two or three years ago, probably three years ago, actually, now I think about it, which was Nino Kuni 2, specifically. And I don't know if either of you played it, but it was, you know, it's sort of a mixture of monster collecting, but also town building, just combined with the usual sort of long fantasy JRPG quest, but... I think just that combination of elements, again, really stood out to me. Like, obviously, again, I like monster collecting. I like building up a team and a party and that kind of stuff. Um, But I think the town building element really is what sort of elevated number two over the original Nino Kuni for me personally. 
because I just liked. I don't know, I don't know if you, either of you played uh, on Wii where Final Fantasy My Life as King, but like just building like this town, building you know, getting residents to move in, have shops, uh, get better gear for your for your party in, in that in that WiiWare game. Having that sort of component built into a a proper RPG, which is probably going back to you know something like gosh. What was that? It just got recently remade. ActRaiser. Um, blanking on it. ActRaiser, yeah, similar to ActRaiser, but obviously a bit more modern. It just really, really gelled with me. And while obviously this one was not an official, you know, Studio Ghibli co-work as the original Nino Kuni was, it still had a lot of Ghibli vibes. And I think that also really helped uh, keep me engaged the entire time. So, yeah, that was that's definitely, you know, for me, one of my, my sort of top three jrpgs and again don't know if either of you have had a chance to check it out i think it launched on switch fairly recently from memory yeah i quite like the uh the battle stuff i like the large-scale battles such as they were yes where you controlled the little armies and they they went around doing their little thing that was good yeah it was good i mean i i like the original nina kuni as well um i thought they were both excellent games it's probably the end of that little mini series but it was good while it lasted yeah, no, I even forgot about that. But yeah, like almost like strategy type like battles was um, just yeah. I think I think what I'm learning is I like a bit of variety in my JRPGs. Like I can take a break from one aspect and then go do something else. And uh, by the time I get bored with that, I just jump back to another element. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Brendan, I don't know. Have you played either Nino Kuni one or two by chance? Unfortunately, I haven't, but they've always been on my um, radar because I do very much like that Studio Ghibli vibe and aesthetic, and I think it does appear that the games capture that quite well. So, The first one was actually developed in collaboration with Studio Ghibli. Like, Studio Ghibli added the uh, the, the cutscenes. They also, the, the composer, Joe Hisashi, composed the music for the original Nino Kuni. I don't mm-hmm. know if he did for the second one, but he did for the first, and I'm pretty sure there was some kind of... Uh, uh, narrative role for Studio Ghibli in there as well. It's a it it, it is very much an animated or video game version of an animated Ghibli film. It's it's great. The second one was a, just a level five thing, so it does feel a little bit different, but still has that same quality. Oh, that's really interesting. That will be good to play both of them one day and be able to compare them. Then, yep, see if you can spot the difference. But anyway, number two for you, Brendan. What gets the honor? Number two for me would be one that I think we talked about briefly earlier in the year and it would be Xenoblade Chronicles particularly the definitive edition that released last year and was one of the main games I got through last year because as um, Matt mentioned and we can perhaps talk about it towards the end of the episode about the just the sheer length of JRPGs it's it, they're generally not an easy genre to get through a lot of them unless you're I guess dedicated to playing games or you have the mentality that you can play a lot of the same genre back to back to back, which sometimes I can struggle with. But for me, Xenoblade Chronicles just really, similar to Abyss in many ways, but different in that it encapsulates my love of the genre and just the love of turn-based games as well, because unlike Abyss, it is a turn-based game, very similar to a lot of MMO-type gameplay styles, which some people can argue that are a bit weak on the gameplay side of things. But I enjoyed Xenoblade, and I think it does some interesting things gameplay wise but i think for nearly all jrpgs what really draws me to the games aren't necessarily going to be the combat and the gameplay i i can appreciate in-depth combat systems and can enjoy them and 
there's a, a lot of fun in just learning them and mastering them and sometimes breaking the systems if the game allows you to break the systems, which some do to um, interesting effects. But for me, Xenoblade just captures that world building, that the story you're building up throughout the game that you're your first hit when you start Xenoblade that you're it's a it's about civilized a civilization that lives on this these two titans that are locked in battle and it just goes from there and it, it never really stops until the end and yes it's, it's an 80 hour game but it doesn't really feel 80 hours when you're playing it because it is it's very frenetic it's it's paced really well i find some games can be 80 hours but there's a lot of filler in them whereas something like Xenoblade it's it's a journey to get through. I, I but at no point would have I called it a slog. I really enjoyed every moment of it. And you can't talk about the series without talking about the music, the the entire original score of that game, which is absolutely sublime. And there's just so many memorable tunes that I still remember to this day, and will whistle occasionally if it um comes to mind. And it, it's a game that I do recommend to everyone. I recently had a friend who bought a Nintendo Switch, and I told him yeah you you must buy this game i don't think he's played it yet i don't know whether he'll get through it but i'm a big advocate for xenoblade would you say that you're really feeling it <laughs> now i'm really feeling it <laughs> it's it's ride time every day every hour of the day so. uh, no that's that's i mean i xenoblade i have to be honest i've started it i think three times given it's i think been released three times and yes. i've yet to actually finish it and I really should uh, at some stage, because you're right. You're not the only one that I know who ranks it in their their top, you know, three or even their top one. Uh, I, I, there's, yeah, I, I know at least five or six people that that's their favorite. In some cases, just game, full stop, not even JRPG. So it's definitely got something special about it that that appeals to to many people. Matt, how about yourself? Have you? Uh, delved into Ryan time and uh, I don't know what other memes I can pull out of yet. <laughs> um, my favourite Xenoblade moment is actually in Xenoblade Chronicles 2 where you uh, where you meet up with the Aussie crew for the first time and they have Aussie <laughs> accents and they're just the most terrible Aussie accents and yet it somehow fits. It's just beautiful. It's a beautiful moment. Uh, now I, I have a funny history with Xenoblade. The first time I played it on the Wii I, I gave it I think 2.5 out of 5 stars just to remember the score I did not like it at all but as time's gone on I've come around to it the second time I played it through on the 3DS I liked it a lot more and then I liked it a lot more on the Switch again I think it's just that game has nuances that I think I missed the first time I don't know what place I was in when I wrote that review but uh, yeah I played the game um, I, I picked up more on it the second and third time through and appreciated it more I don't like the combat system the, the MMO thing just doesn't work for me, but much I, I do really like the characterization and, and the general the, the narrative now. I think I think the thing was I, I spent too much time farting around not actually making progress. I think the first time I played it because it is so large and open and it does kind of encourage you to go and do all these different things. I think I enjoyed it more when I, I stayed on the straight and narrow and kind of just worked through uh, it as a kind of linear experience. That was for me where I found where Xenoblade kind of clicked for me. Yes, and I think it echoes Zach what um our good friend of the show and occasional guest Luke has mentioned with his experience of the game that I know he finished it on the Switch last year and he played through it on the casual mode where it's well you the combat is barely a challenge for most of it and you just can get through the 
narrative of the game, which I think is definitely its strength because it, it does have a lot to say. So I, I definitely recommend that even if people, I, I guess, don't enjoy the gameplay, can't can't see themselves getting through 80 hours of that combat system, that still just persist for that story because I think it's worth experiencing. Yeah, I think that's what I'm going to have to do because I, I think I'm in a similar boat. I just either get too bogged down in the... um the side quests and then it's taking me too long and i'm getting sick of the combat alternatively i have such a big break between um play sessions i just forget the nuances of the combat because particularly i mostly remember this was xenoblade chronicles 2 it is there's just a lot like a lot going on um in terms of what you can and can't do and i think if you don't continuously chip at it pretty frequently it just lose it <laughs> so you yeah, know some good tips um, but yeah, Matt, what's what's another one of your top three JRPGs of all time that you want to highlight? Yeah, I have I have to say Nier. Um, Nier is mm-hmm. is my favorite game of all time. I I genuinely think it is the the best game that I've ever played. So it kind of has to be in my top three. It's it's kind of everything. It is super super smart. The first time I played Nier, I was in the middle of doing. Um, a course in in philosophy and it actually clicked up quite nicely so uh there there's a lot in near to work through beyond just the the entertaining side of things if you if you really want to dig into that game you can write a thesis on it quite easily uh it's also super fun like it, it is really funny and sharp and it's it's a delight on that level too if you don't want to dig into it you can still enjoy it on on the narrative level that like that uh it's got such a great blend of gameplay bits and pieces it's a bit of a mishmash of harvest moon at one point it's got a fishing minigame in there it's got all kinds of kind of um other random elements in it the dungeons themselves are always structured after different things like there's a visual novel dungeon for goodness sakes there's um there's a shmup dungeon as well where it's all kind of top-down shooter style action and the the engine just man- somehow manages to work across these very disparate genres. It was really Yokotaro having a bit of fun with genre and gameplay and saying you want to create you you want to call this a JRPG. Well, I'm really going to challenge you to be able to prove that it is. So it's it's a complex game. It's a smart game. It's a really fun game. Uh, the action's excellent and it has an incredible voice cast. It's one of the few games where I prefer to play it in English than Japanese. I much prefer the dub because the Laura Bailey is just absolutely incredible as Kanye. I can never pronounce her name. Kane. And the Liam, well, what's his name? Liam O'Brien, who's a very famous anime voice actor. He plays the book Grimoire Voice. And um, mm-hmm. he plays it as like a an off-brand Alan Rickman. And it's just absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and the banter between the characters is just spot on. It's just... It's a magnificent game in every level, and getting to play it, replay it this year with the remaster was a real joy, and I'm glad that more people can play it, because it was also one of the rare games that was never released digitally, so you could only buy it at retail, and it was an absolute sales flop, so they didn't release many copies. The studio went under, they never did reprints, they never released it on PlayStation Network, so for a lot of people I know, their first chance to actually play Nier came with the remaster, because they only got into near thanks to automata being a big success so they never had a chance to play the original but they've finally been able to this year and i'm pretty happy that uh, so many people have responded well to it yeah i mean i'm definitely in the i played near automata and loved it and then i picked up near replicant 
I haven't started it yet. It is on my Christmas backlog list of when I have some time off work. Uh, out of interest, if you, you know, if you had unlimited money and resources and you could pick Replicant over all the original, either Xbox or PS3 version, is it? Do you have a view on which one to go for? Because I just hear some mixed things sometimes about the the different iterations of of Nier. Yeah, so there's two two versions really. There's one version where the protagonist, as in the character you play is the brother of the kind of the damsel. It doesn't really work out that way, but his his little sister is sick and he has to go on this quest to mm-hmm. try and find a magical flower that will heal her. That's really the concept of Nia. It goes all kinds of weird places after that, but that's the basic idea of it. Uh, so yeah, on, on the remaster or the re-release, whatever it's called now, version 1.11276, whatever numbers are after that, um, <laughs> that one is the brother-sister relationship. The one that was released on PlayStation back on the PS3, and I think it was only PlayStation, was Daddy Nia. So rather than a brother, it's uh, this father figure. And he's kind of like the anti-protagonist character because, you know, you look at all the, the hulking big brute fathers that are in video games these days, you know, Kratos and God of War and whatever. This guy was just an ugly old dude. And he was great. He was absolutely great. And the the dynamics between him and his daughter in that case, I felt were much stronger than the brother-sister relationship. So I do think the PS3 and it was also an Xbox. I do think the PS3 and Xbox version is superior. The good news is you don't actually have to spend that much anymore because uh, that version of Nier was released as a backwards compatible compatible game on the Xbox. So if you have an Xbox series uh, or Xbox One, I think you can just buy that game now and download it and play with Daddy Near rather than Brother Near. The whole Near family. Yep, that's well, exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually one that I have and actually have played. I never managed to finish Near on the PS3, unfortunately, because I lucked out and found a copy at a JV Hi-Fi for $4. Or oh, would have been about 2015, 16 when they were... Well, I think they still are in some regards but when they were clearing out ps3 games and at the time i didn't really have ready access to a ps3 so i played about i think i played about the first five six hours was really enjoying my time with the game but then didn't have access to that ps3 at the time and then fell away into playing other things so haven't got back to it yet but it's just a really interesting and strange experience especially at the start of the game i know i'm sure a lot of it will make a lot more sense once i get through it but I was enjoying my time in the game, just trying to wrap my head around simply what was going on. And I think that is the beauty of a lot of Yoko Taro games in that it, it, they definitely do make you think. They just, they aren't going to be straightforward, both from a story perspective and from a gameplay perspective as well. They're going to do interesting things. Yeah, it only makes sense by the time you get to the fifth ending. <laughs> I am not I'm not surprised hearing you say that, Matt. <laughs> There's, a few, there's, there's not quite as many endings as there are in Nier Automata. I love in Nier Automata how you get an ending if you eat fish. Uh, and that was that was one of my favourite endings of a video game ever. You just eat the fish and then the game stops uh, deliberately. <laughs> it's not a crash. It's just like you, you're an idiot. You ate the fish. Game over. Yeah, the, the, there are five, five, six endings in the original Nier. And yeah, it, it obviously layers on the meaning more and more each time you replay. You don't have to replay the whole game because it jumps forward to bits and pieces. But... It is Yoko Taro through and through, and it is it does challenge you <laughs> to make sense of it all. But it's it is worth the journey, definitely. 
Yeah, no, for sure. It's definitely, I mean, if Automata is anything to go by, like a uniquely only can be done in video games kind of story, I reckon. So that makes a lot of sense. Which probably leads to my other JRPG, and I sort of mentioned this earlier in the episode, and, and it also fits the, the bill of, I think only really works as a video game, and that is Undertale. Uh, I really, really loved Undertale. I think the way it lets you choose how to play it is very clever. Uh, I really enjoy the combat system because, or, or lack of combat system, if that's the route you choose to go, which which is personally the route I prefer the most. In almost playing kind of like, it could be a, a shmup, it could be, you know, a platformer, it could just be moving a heart around in a circle. Uh, it's sort of like micro games uh, for each different type of enemy. And I just, yeah, again, the story I thought was really clever, really cute. You know, the the journey of uh, this, you know, boy who's found himself in a monster world, or girl, I don't know if there's an official gender, actually, now I think about it. And I don't want to say too much, but again, it does stuff with the storytelling that obviously, again, given what I said at the start, is inherently only achievable in a video game. Um, and I, that's, to me, some of my, you know, I love games that do that. They they take advantage of that fact, and it's again not long either. I think I've never played Undertale. I've oh. never played it. <laughs> it's do. one of the very few. Uh, it is it is on the list, and every time I say I've never played it, everyone that knows me goes, "What the hell? What is wrong with you? Play it right now." I just haven't. I've played all the games that are around it, so I know the games that inspired the developer, like uh, Earthbound, obviously, but also Moon. Moon's an excellent mm. one that inspired him directly. So. I like those. I assume I'm going to really enjoy Undertale when I find the time for it. But yeah, I reckon you will. Moon's on my to playlist because I think that, again, maybe a year or so now launched on Switch, but I just yeah. haven't uh, took the plunge. But yeah, I, I think you'll like it uh, if you like those games. And um, Deltarune is free to play. Um, I definitely think you get more out of Deltarune if you've played Undertale, but you could certainly even try that as a starting point because uh you know if it, maybe not you specifically map but if someone uh is like i don't know if i want to spend the 10 bucks or whatever it is on undertale um give delta a shot because i think you'll you'll at least get the vibe you'll get whether this is for you and then maybe go back and play undertale to get the well, i still don't quite understand the relationship between the two yet you sort of see the links but they're it's not 100 percent clear which way it's going to go um but yeah, it's 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 a ton of fun, and uh, again, challenges you, makes you think about stuff. Good philosophy kind of game. Think about your moles, that kind of thing. Brendan, have you have you played Undertale or, or not not had a chance to yet? No, I haven't played Undertale yet. I, I think at the time when it came out, I was going through a weird stage where I wasn't really playing indie games at the time for whatever reason. I'm fully back on that bandwagon now. I think there's some superb indie game experiences out there and i was probably a fool for ignoring some of them at the time but it's it's one on the radar it's one that i'll probably grab it's on sale a lot i assume so i guess the question is whether i'll play it on pc or i I think it's on switch isn't it i know delta runes on switch is yeah yeah. on switch as well i think they're both on both switch ps4 probably ps5 as well by that token and um yeah pc obviously yeah, there's no wrong answer, I think, for which platform you go with. But I think it's designed for PC first, so I don't know if that changes your opinion one way or the other. Alrighty. Uh, Brendan, do you want to finish us off with your final and, I assume, favourite JRPG of, of all time? 
Sure. Uh, and I might, I may be che- arguably cheating with this choice. Um, if people, I guess if people um, reject my designating this as a JRPG, well, go ahead. But it would have to be Fire Emblem on the GBA, also known as the Blazing Sword. I won't try to do the... I'd butcher it if I try to say the Japanese title, so we'll just go with Fire Emblem. And why I say it might be a controversial choice for some is that there may be people that would argue that, oh, it's not a it's not a JRPG, Brendan. It's a SRPG or a tactical RPG. It's a different genre. But I, I think aside from the the gameplay style, that yes, it is a tactical role-playing game from a gameplay mechanics perspective, it does have all those hallmarks of a JRPG that we've been discussing throughout this episode. It, it has that strong narrative storytelling style and it, it, it's it's mostly linear it, well it's linear but from the i'd say it's a subgenre and it's linear from that perspective it's taking you from chapter to chapter it's not an open world experience it's very guided in that way and it is able to use that and, and leverage that design to really tell a story and for me it's always been a compelling one and it, it was outside of pokemon as i mentioned earlier it was the first jrpg i arguably played outside of the pokemon series and i think that's why it's been such an important game for me for my own gameplay history because it's very much marked the type of games i really enjoy that i did fall into liking things like your XCOMs and the like that yes aren't, aren't rpgs aren't jrpgs so i won't get into those this episode but it really opened up my mind to the possibilities of what games can do and what games can say and at the time I was a very avid reader of fantasy novels. I was going through your Hobbits, your Lord of the Rings and the like. And for me, this told a, probably if I was to objectively assess it now, I'd argue that it's not as strong as novels from a story perspective. It's very, very much takes a lot of cues from this, the Song of Roland, which is a medieval poem, European one. So it's an interesting game in that it's very Japanese, but it's very much inspired by a very Western... 700 to 800 AD aesthetic which I also find very compelling as a as a historian myself so it really has a lot of elements for me as to what makes a game enjoyable to play and also what makes a game remarkable to me and I guess life-changing to me personally and that's why it's always going to be one of my favorites on these sort of lists and why I'll force it into this one even if someone might argue that it's not (laughs) a JRPG. It's all right. It's got Lynn, so it's okay. <laughs> it, gets a pa- it gets a pass with me. It gets a pass with me. I love Lynn so much. <laughs> She's, She's great. She's such a good character, and I just love the fact that they managed to add her story in as a quasi-tutorial, and it's it's quite a good story in its own right as well. That's what I loved about it. It was like it was a 13-chapter tutorial and gave you everything you needed to know to how to play the game, and that was great. But it was also a self-contained story where you got to meet Lynn and then go on her quest to to claim her you know rightful throne over her evil uncle, uh, and then they all split up and you're like, oh okay, that's nice. That must have just been the tutorial. So you meet the two main characters in theory, that being Elliewood and uh, Hector, and go off on their adventure. But then they start meeting all your favorite characters from the tutorial and they all start rejoining the party and you're like, well, this is just awesome. I get to reunite with all my mates and continue on the quest and then Lynn eventually joins as well and oh this is all spoilers again but Lynn <laughs> Lynn eventually joins again and yeah it's just the three of them then go and kick ass together it's great I just I love the structure of Fire Emblem it's a magnificent example of how to do a tutorial 
in a way that people actually want to replay again. Because every time I've replayed Fire Emblem since, I've loved that tutorial because it does have that unique narrative attached to it. Zach, have you, have you played it? I can't. I, I know we have discussed this point before, but I, I don't remember if you actually have experienced it or not. Kind of. Uh, it was one of those I played like with my friend, like in uh, what year, like five or six or whatever it would have been when it came out. Because um, he had it on Game Boy Advance, and I had a Game Boy player, so <laughs> we were playing on my TV, um, passing it back and forth. But I. Probably didn't experience the whole game because it was probably bits he did back at his house that I didn't see. So that was, but I've never, yeah, sat down by myself and played it, which is something I want to do because, again, when I did play it, yeah, really enjoyed it. And as you said, the characters, uh, particularly there, Lynn, uh, I really liked Hector as well, actually. Um, just, yeah, a good, good, good Fire Emblem game, good story. Um, and I think, you know, between that and Final Fantasy Advance, they were sort of my two, like, introductions to the the s rpg genre if you want to call it that so they they hold kind of a special sort of little spot in my heart for that sort of grid-based uh turn-based combat so uh yeah i think we can all agree lynn robbed from smash brothers is this <laughs> trophy you get bloody three oh, no. characters tell me about <laughs> at least she was in fire uh fire emblem warriors like uh, yes that was a nice addition she she was amazing She's the best. She's one of the best characters in the Fire Emblem series, I'd argue. And for those who haven't played it and happen to have a Wii U, which I know is not that many people, though probably a large proportion of our audience do have Wii Us, it, it is still available on the virtual console there. So, yes, there's probably questions over the GBA emulation on that system, but it's one way to play it legitimately. And I'll treasure my physical copy that I ended up importing from the US as a whole story in that, but very much encourage anyone listening to this to go and have a try at it even if you've never played a fire emblem game before i think it's also a very good entry point into fire emblem um i guess you can argue now that awakening and three houses might be a bit more accessible but for me i think there's some there's definitely arguments to be made and one would be that tutorial with lynn's story as to why fire emblem gba is a very good entry point into the series Okay, Matt, given you said Nia was your potentially favourite game of all time, now I'm curious... Not potentially, absolutely, 100% my favourite game of all time. It is. Yes, absolutely. I didn't realise we were doing these in order, and I was scrambling to come up with games, because the last one, I mean, there's just too many. (laughs) Too many to narrow down to three. Mm -hmm. I feel obligated to say a Final Fantasy, because I've grown up with that series, and to this day I love it. But I also can't, because I have to mention... My third, fa- my third one in my list would have to be a game that I would be surprised if you played. It's very niche, but uh, Blue Reflection, which is mm, relatively yes. new, it came out a couple of years ago. I thought it was going to be the only one because it was an absolute bomb of a game, but uh, they've recently released a sequel. So good on Koei Tecmo for doing that. But Blue Reflection is my favorite game, or one of my favorite games for for a whole bunch of reasons. But I guess two of them is that it is. It is just a breathtakingly beautiful game, and it's it's an example of how you don't need to have a fifty million dollar AAA budget to create a game that is just absolutely gorgeous. Because this game is just pure aesthetics um, from top to bottom. It's the interfa- from the interface to the character models to the battle scenes and the costume and everything about this game is just beautiful. Um, so. On that level, I really loved it. And then it's also this really wholesome game. It got a reputation for being very fan-servicey, as I guess a certain 
you know, sub-genre within JRPGs can be. But once you push past that, and it was really only the screenshots that gave it that reputation, once you actually sat down to play the game, you realize it was this really wholesome and very sweet kind of story. And also it is, you know, uh, same-sex LGBT storyline. So it handles that in a very nice way as well. And we just don't get many games that do that in a way that doesn't come across as exploitive or unpleasant or, or nasty or anything like that. So this game is just this really sweet, wholesome JRPG that's very pleasant to play and is absolutely beautiful. And yeah, the Blue, Blue Reflection is, is a game that's really stuck with me since. I've managed to convince a whole bunch of people to actually play it, and every single person that I've convinced to play it actually loves it. So yeah, it was it, it's destined to be a cult classic, I think. One I've heard of but haven't really put on my radar. So after what you've just said, Matt, I'm definitely going to keep an eye out on getting it and playing it because i believe it is it's on steam isn't it i know the sequel's definitely it on is steam. on steam yeah it had a weird thing in australia where it got released as an ma game or something got revised up to r got pulled off every single store shelf and off the playstation network and xbox for some reason so it became basically unavailable in australia except except off steam <laughs> even though it was never actually banned i don't know i don't know what happened with that story i've actually asked the Tecmo guys to dig into it and figure out what the hell went on but uh nobody can work out why it just disappeared about a day or two after launch <laughs> it just it just went it just went i think i remember that happening because i think either at the same time or very close by there was a similar incident with like one of the senran kagura games where it was like out for a solid two days and then got up to tier to r and then just disappeared and like i went to ev games the day it got pulled from shelves i'm like surely you can sell me these games and they're like no nah can't do it and i was like damn <laughs> like not that i particularly wanted to play the same Rankagura game it was at that point more just a collector's novelty <laughs> but yeah what a, what a weird... it's just so weird because r18 is not banned in australia there's no reason that they can't put it on the shelves or whatever so i don't know what happened to those copies they must be in landfill somewhere oh well, that could be so a we... fun uh, documentary we could all uh kickstart or something go go find the landfill <laughs> <laughs> go find the senrin kagura and uh, blue reflections landfill yeah i'll see you I'll see you out there with a shovel. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. No, that, yeah, I, I have to admit, I, again, I hadn't heard of it until your review, actually, of number two fairly recently, Matt, and that sort of piqued my interest because um, it seems number two, uh, not only, I don't, again, I haven't read your original review of the first one, so I don't know if, uh, how it compares, but um, number two seems to be received a bit more favorably by the, the, the critic masses, I guess we'll call it, compared to number one so sort of had me intrigued in going back and checking the first one then seeing if uh, number two is worth playing so without trying to get into it too deeply because we haven't got hours and hours i guess (laughs) but um the problem with the first one right and the reason it ended up with those screenshots and that reputation is that it has bath scenes in it basically that is the that is where the controversy comes from it's blue reflection water is a recurring motif in it and as part of that the girls are in the baths every so often you don't see anything it's all covered and all that but they're there and it's quite obvious but the thing is i mean it that is a very japanese cultural thing that i think got misinterpreted out the west because in japan bathing isn't nearly the kind of you only do it in private kind of thing you've got the hot springs of course people go and share hot springs there's half the hotels you go into in japan don't have private bathrooms you've got to go and shower and whatever in the kind of the communal ones so you know there, there is a different cultural attitude around bathing in japan which I don't know why they put it in the game if they were going to sell it out the West, but whatever reason, they missed that cultural lack of translation. They've removed most of that from the sequel, which is why I think the sequel's been 
received a bit better. It's just as fan service, if you want to call it that, but it has not any of those kind of sensitive points that result in the first one getting slammed. So it's much the same game. You can play the second one and get much the same experience. No, well, maybe, maybe I'll check out the second one then first. Um, well, as I said before, Persona 4 was my number one, so I didn't... Um, that's already talked about, so I won't reiterate it again. But I might just shout out... It's not even really... I don't even see my top anything, but it's, I think, just an interesting JRPG because it's very different. And I think fun in a way that's, again, not what I... Not a different type of fun than what I normally get from most JRPGs, and that is Metopia, which <laughs> is... It's very simple. Like, it's, it's probably... You know, when I said Pokemon's baby's first RPG, I reckon Metopia actually is is a better first RPG for, like, little kids because... Uh, it's just very simple mechanically. It's it's the bare basics, but I think just the quirkiness, the you know, it carries over some of the quirkiness of Tomodachi Life and uh, Mitomo. If you uh, ever got the chance to play that on the phones before it went mm-hmm. the way of the dodo, and again is is a really good example of a more comedy based, I think, um, sort of story, and, and not even story, just comedy based sort of like you know sort of vignettes where you know your knees go off on dates or they just stumble across some random thing on their journey and it's just you know good light-hearted fun and really easy to just pick up and play if um you're not afting a, a big time sink and just want something pretty chill and doesn't require a lot of brain function to to get through and as i said it just stands out to so many other you know games in the genre is quite a unique one from my perspective uh, Matt, you chuckled, so I'm guessing you have played some or Mutopia before. <laughs> yeah, that game is a delight, uh, absolute delight. I agree with you; it's it's awesome, uh, and it is a nice foil, I guess, for how many JRPGs out there just take themselves so seriously. You know, um, it lends itself; the genre lends itself to quite thought-provoking and serious plots. I mean, all the games that we've discussed here, pretty much, or pretty much all the games that we've discussed here have some level of seriousness about the narrative. So to have the games like Metopia out there just kind of bouncing along being silly and and nonsense fun, uh, I, yeah, I really enjoyed my time with it as well. I think it's excellent. I, I would suggest that it's probably not uh, my first JRPG because I think the value in that game comes from already knowing the JRPG genre. The more you know of mm. the JRPG, the more you can kind of enjoy the way it kind of quirkly messes with it if that makes sense uh, i don't know it, it mechanically it's very simple and it's the kind of game you can play after 12 beers and and still get somewhere but yeah i don't know it, for me it, it it seems to be a very for jrpg fans jrpg well it's probably both in some respects right like it's for for mm. people like yourself and then me who've played jrpgs we we laugh at like almost the parody and, and the twists and stuff and then uh, again for a mm. kid it's just uh, me does something funny i press button numbers go up yay kind of thing so i can sort of see it yeah absolutely anyone. <laughs> and i mean the the quest for people's faces is kind of you know that's something everybody can enjoy right mm. <laughs> rescue people's faces stick them back on yep get you know a wider's face or this face and put them <laughs> back you know where they belong <laughs> um i don't know brenda did you ever give either on the 3ds or, or the this year's switch release of metopia a crack no, I haven't, but I love the concept of it because I really enjoyed all the all of Nintendo's forays into the Mii's. I enjoyed Metopia. 
I enjoyed a lot of the straight past, a lot of the straight past games that featured me. So it, it's definitely in my probably my wheelhouse, and it's one I probably should experience. I'll probably, I'm, I'm sure we'll get a deep sale on the Switch at some point, and I'll pick it up and have a go at it. But I think really, I guess one thing I can say about it is I I am disappointed that me seemed to be on the out, and I think. It was a concept that was perfectly designed for the 3DS, so with straight passing minds, where you could collect me. So I understand why, but it, it definitely seems that Metopia on the Switch is probably one of Nintendo's sort of last forays into that me franchise that they really carved out. So I, I find that interesting as well. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a kind of the last bastion of me's in recent times, unless you count like I think they're in Mario Golf or something like that. And yeah, I, again, I definitely just give it a crack. You know, it, it's low effort. You can probably get it cheap in a, a sale at some point, and uh, I'm sure you'll have a good laugh with it. And with that, I think we've really, you know, delved pretty deep on this this genre. I mean, again, we could probably spend ten hours if we really wanted to <laughs> and go into the nuances. But um, I think if we did that, we'd uh, most people would probably uh, either tune out or. Uh, <laughs> We'd use up a lot of their bandwidth or something if they were downloading on uh, <laughs> on their on their of their SIM card. So we'll, we'll we'll leave it for now, and perhaps we can always pick it up again uh, and take it a step further if people enjoy this episode. But I'll, I'll toss to you guys. Is there any sort of final thoughts, final musings you want to get out into the world on either the genre or games they should check out, or anything you know you want to just just voice? Yeah, I think there's a just a. It's definitely a genre that if you haven't experienced, it's definitely worth experiencing because I think, well, there's just such a range and variety of different experiences that the umbrella genre offers. There's a lot of subgenres like we discussed. There's things like the um, strategy RPGs, tactical RPGs. There's things. There's more simulation-based um, JRPGs. There's things like the Atelier series that is quite different to a lot of other series as well. There's, there's just so much variety that you can really find what you find enjoyable in a gameplay setting generally distilled in the JRPG aesthetics. So it's worth venturing in. And I think, I guess if I was to leave with one last thought-provoking thought, it'd be just, just thinking about what the future of the genre is. Because I think there is a bit of a renaissance at the moment in that where there was a period, particularly around the the first Xenoblade Chronicles era where, well, Nintendo didn't want to publish it in the West, particularly in America, because they didn't think there was a market there. And there was moments like there was that publisher, Image Epoch, who framed themselves as sort of the saviors of the genre. They they no longer exist as a company, but they I think they had a label called JRPG at the time, and they were trying to frame themselves as the future of the genre and as groundbreaking. But I think the genre has definitely, in some ways it's evolved, and in some ways I think it's, gone back to some of the core features as to why people enjoy them in the first place and i think it's just reaping the benefits of that dual approach because you have things like the final fantasy 7 remake which was critically acclaimed in most circles and it's a remake but it's still very different to the original release of final fantasy 7 so there's just always new and interesting things that the genre attempts and i think developers within the genre itself are always looking to push the boundaries and the expand it so it's always a it's an interesting and compelling genre and type of games to really throw yourselves into and give a crack yeah i mean i guess for me the thing 
I would encourage people to do is to to go into these games with an open mind. And I think one thing that has been a bit of a problem for the JRPG is that the audience for it is quite it's stagnant mm-hmm. and by that I mean it's simply there. It's not really growing like the rest of the industry is. It's not shrinking. There's certainly a core base there and I think that the Japanese developers have realized that and to to your point, one of the reasons that they are going back to the way that people like JRPGs is because they're trying to appeal to that existing fan base. They know that they're not going anywhere. Um, they seem to be struggling to broaden the audience over time, so they're kind of sticking to to their existing market. But for the people who haven't really experienced JRPGs before, I really recommend picking one or two of them up. Go with the popular ones, you know, grab a Dragon Quest or... Maybe not Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy's become a little bit too experimental, I think, for first-time JRPG fans. But grab a Xenoblade Chronicles. You know, you can trust Nintendo to make games in a way that are palatable to to a broad audience. Or Dragon Quest is a great way to experience the traditional JRPG formula. And just go into them with an open mind. Accept that they're going to be colourful. And that's okay. (laughs) You know, not every game needs to look like Call of Duty or GTA. It doesn't need to have the kind of... It doesn't need to have that kind of urban realism with all the gritty bloodletting and all that stuff. Just uh, accept the colour and just appreciate it for what it is. And it's a bit like subtitles with uh, films. And what was that uh, Korean director's name? And he came up with that, that really famous statement that once people get over the one inch line of text on the screen, they a whole new world of uh, films are open to them. It's a bit like that with JRPGs. Once you get over the fact that they're colourful and don't look like the Western games that you enjoy so much, you're actually going to find a whole bunch of games that you may just love that you might not have otherwise played. So give them a go. Yeah, I 100% agree. And at, at a point that we sort of made earlier on, but I really want to emphasise is because, I mean, it, I don't know, if you were like to go into a, a forum or I don't know, forums don't really exist, but like Reddit maybe or something and look into fans of the genre, a lot of them are going to, talk in a way that can be very overwhelming about you know optimizing you know their their gear and moves and number crunching and all that kind of stuff potentially you don't have to delve into that you can you know if the game has difficulty options put it on easy put it on very easy if that's there and just you know don't you don't have to um do the challenging version of games the same way you know for any genre really but with with jrpgs if that's something that's intimidating you um feel free to to take it down a notch just sort of go through experience the story and then if you really like it then you might go okay i'll crank it up a notch on my replay try and understand the mechanics a bit better and um if that's something that you want to do or just keep playing other games and easy that's also fine you know you don't let people shame you i guess into having to do it the 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 proper way or anything like that which first i can say about any genre but i i definitely feel a lot with the jrp genre myself and what's helped me that's kind of the point isn't it i mean if you don't want to play a challenging game you don't want to be challenged with the jrpg you've still got a 60 hour narrative which is going to be full of great characters and surprising moments and all these kind of epic worlds Mm -hmm. to explore and you get so much out of the jrpg even if you don't play it on the high difficulty setting uh, as some of the fans might insist you do you even if you play it on the setting where the game basically plays itself you're still going to get an incredible experience which is more than can be said for a lot of other genres which really do rely on the gameplay. The JRPG genre is can be like reading a book, you know, a really good book, rather than 
playing a video game as such. So yeah, it's not it shouldn't be an intimidating genre for people. Unfortunately, it is, but it shouldn't be. <laughs> and with that, I think that uh, that wraps up our discussion. Our uh, role playing podcast discussion. Uh, I was trying to make a joke, couldn't think of one. We'll just keep rolling. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> um, the meta joke. So, Matt, thank you again so much for joining us. It was uh, a pleasure to have you on. Uh, pleasure to speak. I've, I've I've seen you on Twitter a fair bit, but haven't spoken to you for the, at all. So, this was really uh, a great experience for me, and I'm sure Brendan echoes that sentiment. Agreed. Thank you very much. It's been amazing. I, I do love talking about the JRPG, so I rarely get a chance to do it for 90 minutes straight. Uh, thank you very much. No worries. And I, I mean, from what I can see, there's quite a few topics you have um, some passions about. So hopefully we'll have you on again to talk about, um, I don't know, whether it's uh, video games as art or, or not as art, depending on um, how um, people view things and uh, a bunch of other stuff. I see your very uh, insightful Twitter threads and also your... Uh, articles on your website which is probably a good chance to segue to where do people find you to experience your your uh, written uh, works and, and and visual works as well your videos as well yeah i don't recommend people following me on twitter i say a lot of things there that gets people <laughs> mad at me uh, yeah don't don't do that you you can find me on digitallydownloaded.net not .com.net i don't know where .com goes anymore it's not to my website and <laughs> I am not responsible for where you end up. But yeah, DDNet, and from there you'll be able to find the YouTube channel and stuff as well, and the Discord, the DDNet Discord. So if you ever want to chat with me directly, that's where you can jump. We talk, we talk a lot of JRPGs on that Discord as well. Excellent, and uh, thanks again to Matt for coming on. You've been one of the guests that Zach and I have been talking about for quite some time, so it was good we finally were able to set it up. And now... Our listeners are blowing cartridges can finally um, rest because I'll stop being able to tease the idea that we're going to do an episode on JRPGs and actually not do an episode on JRPGs. So that is a gift that I offer our listeners for this episode. So <laughs> I, I suggest you take it. You've truly leveled up, Brendan. You knew you've, you've upgraded to a new class, one that doesn't uh, constantly tease people about <laughs> about this topic. But, you know, if you want to see what we're teasing next, which we don't know what it is yet, we'll have to talk about it after this, um, you can you can check us out on a bunch of social media at uh, blowingcartridge at gmail.com is how you can email us. Sorry, not at, though, blowingcartridge at gmail.com or at blowcartpod on uh, Twitter and Facebook. Facebook looks a bit weird right now. All our posts show is unavailable, except for the latest one. I don't know why. We're looking into that. <laughs> Zuckerberg hasn't been answering my calls, um, so we'll see. But, you know, otherwise, you can also follow me at Egorino on Twitter and uh, Brendan at Tamazoid. So, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. So thanks for joining us. And until next time, you know, we'll be ready to, to get the dust off your cartridge on the next Blowing Cartridge episode. May the RNG gods be with you. Thank you.